Hey, I'm Josh Walker. I'm one of the owners of REIT Investing. This is the Good at Money podcast, and today we are going to talk about asset types. So when I, mean, when I say asset types, I mean all the different types of assets that you can invest in through syndications or syndicated deals. We talk a lot about real estate. It goes way beyond real estate. But even within real estate, there are a ton of different types of assets. So know that you can find pretty much anything. There are crazy things out there that you can invest in. In syndicated deals, I've mentioned in the past, I, the craziest thing I think I've ever seen is where somebody was trying to pool money together through a syndication to fund someone's legal fees. I don't remember what the lawsuit was about, but they were funding someone's legal fees. And if they won, they were going to proportionately share the winnings with those who, if you want to call that an investment, invested. So they can get as crazy as that. That's not what we are at all about. So we'll cover some of the more popular options, some of the typical things that we see come across our desk and vet and send out to our investors. So when you think about each one of these, as we go through them, think about what each type of asset can provide. And that's that's generally what, what we'll cover. Think about the risks, think about the rewards, and think about how that would potentially fit in to what you want to build. We've talked a ton about cash flow versus growth over time and tax advantages and velocity of money, how quickly you get your, your investment back out. It, uh, we are strong believers in that you should define your investment criteria from do I want cash flow? Do I want growth over time? Do I need tax advantages? How should I go about this? Define that. Now you know kind of what you're looking for. Now think through, okay, which types of assets provide that kind of information and then start digging into deals that offer that uh, those types of assets. So one of the greatest advantage advantages of investing in syndications versus actively managing assets. And when I say actively managing assets, think I'm going to go buy personally or through an LLC, a single family rental home or a small apartment or whatever it is, but I'm going to own it myself or with a few people and I'm going to manage it or I'm going to have a team that's going to manage it. One of the greatest advantages over syndications versus active, and there's a place for both, but with syndications, you can get as diversified as you want. And it allows for what I refer to as smart diversification versus blind widespread diversification, which is what is generally recommended in the stock market. We've talked about Warren Buffett. He's quoted as saying widespread diversification is only required when investors do not understand what they're doing. The same man, Warren Buffett, the greatest value investor that the planet has ever known, also gives the advice directly that anyone investing in stocks should do it through wide diversification. You should invest in whole market index funds. They're low fees. You're betting on the entire stock market. One of the, it's going to be a it's going to be a average to minimal return over time. And what I mean by that is the odds of you doubling, quadrupling your money over three to five years, which you can potentially do in a, an investment in a real asset, 
those the returns in the stock market are typically going to be less because you're bringing nothing to the table. Anyone can do this. It requires no vetting. If you're going to just bet on the whole stock market, throw your money at it and hope that it goes up some amount over time, you're bringing nothing to the table. So Warren Buffett, Buffett's words are that when you're bringing nothing to the table, you should not expect anything close to a significant return. So what syndications allow for you to do is define that criteria, define what you want, figure out where you are right now, set a goal for where you want to be, and then diversify in a smart, intelligent way from a cash flow, from a growth standpoint, and from a tax standpoint, and figure out what types of assets lend those things to those goals, and then go for it. So for, for these examples that we'll talk about, we'll assume for each case that you're investing with a great sponsor who has done a number of deals and has a great track record. The golden rule, we say it almost every episode, there's no such thing as a good deal with a bad sponsor. So any, uh, any asset type, doesn't matter what it is. If you go into it without doing your homework and you have a bad sponsor, that deal can go to nothing, right? That deal can just be trash. It can be horribly mismanaged and horrible things can happen. We are going to assume for each one of these asset types, that's not what you're doing. You vetted the sponsor. They're a great sponsor and they are going to deliver what this type of asset should deliver. So the first thing we'll talk about is multifamily and we'll specifically start with small apartments. So or I'm sorry, we'll start with large apartments. So large apartments are generally thought of as a solid long-term investment. They typically have steady cash flow. There aren't a ton of these uh, a ton of things, factors that can drive the cash flow significantly up or significantly down. It can rise over time if operated the right way. Um, heavy renovations for large apartments can be much more difficult, time consuming and risky. And the reason for that now, if you have an amazing sponsor who's done this over and over again, it might be the greatest thing in the world, but you're t with large apartments, you're dealing with tons, maybe hundreds of units. And so typically when you're going through this renovation period on a heavy renovation, this can create a dip in occupancy. And if they get too aggressive on how quickly, how many renovations, how many units they're renovating at one time, the occupancy can dip so much that it can put at risk the sponsor's ability to pay the banknote. And when that happens, Everybody knows we hit on it every time the bank gets paid first when the bank can't get paid because of how the asset is being operated. That's a disaster. So you need somebody who's very, very experienced, especially, I mean, regardless, you need somebody who's very, very experienced, but if it's a heavy lift on a large apartment complex, the operations piece is even that much more critical. So the other thing to think about when you are considering large apartments, Sponsors are often competing with institutional capital, and that's generally something that you, you do not want to do. You cannot win if you are truly competing, going head to head. You've got a sponsor who's pooling funds from investors versus institutional capital. What I mean by institutional capital, capital is REITs and hedge funds. So REITs would be real estate investment trusts or massive hedge funds. Some of these are playing with billions and billions of dollars, they care much less and sometimes not at all what the early time cash flow is. They are playing the longest 
long game. They are playing the game of general appreciation. And this is generally what anyone should do once you reach a certain level of wealth, right? You build wealth by putting some amount of money at risk, and maybe there's a little more risk early in this wealth building time. But once you build up an amount of money that has you set for life, your risk tolerance should go significantly down. And that's to the nth degree what institutional capital is all about. So when you are competing with institutional capital, institutional capital, I'm going to say that right eventually, the purchase prices of these assets can get driven up very high. It can become extremely inflated because they just don't care what it's going to do to the early time cash flow versus the investor. So if bought right with the right debt structure, the long-term growth with the right kind of operations can be huge. So you can win in a big, big way with large apartments. If you can find large apartments that are a steal, maybe somebody is defaulting on their note and you've got a sponsor who has an in with the bank and that's how they're going to acquire it and it never goes to market. So you're not competing with institutional capital. That can be an amazing win, but no, some of these guys that have massive funds that, I mean, I'm talking hundred million dollar funds and they, the problem with this, and this is probably a separate episode, but the problem with these huge funds, hundreds of millions of dollars of funds is that now they have to place it right. They have, investors ha have dedicated some amount of money and they have to, the sponsor has to go place it. So when they have to go buy six, seven, whatever the number is separate large scale apartment complexes, they just, what you want to avoid is somebody who's just trying to find something that they can buy versus trying to find an amazing deal. So we generally stay away from the huge, huge, large apartment funds. Now let's talk about small apartments. We are huge fans of small apartments. There's more opportunity to buy from mom and pops. And what I mean by mom and pops are just individual owners. They've had them for a long time. So you're not competing with the, these small apartments. They're generally just not big enough for institutional capital to care about. So there are large apartments that mom and pops own that end up selling them to institutional capital. These small apartments though, there's a window where, you know, we're not, we're generally not talking about five plex to eight plexes, right? It's, it's more like 12 to 50, somewhere in there. It's a good range and take that with a grain of salt, but that's a good range where you can still find mom and pop owners and institutional capital is not going to, to, to come after it. So uh, some of the things with mom and pop owners that are way more common to see versus a more sophisticated owner, they often are not collecting all of the rent. They are doing a poor job of maintaining the property. So they are going to struggle forever to raise the rent because nobody wants to pay for something that's not being maintained. And they're not coming close to utilizing all of the potential income streams. Things like, I think, charging for covered parking or renting out washers and dryers, those kinds of things that a slightly more sophisticated owner could create. So 
the other thing to think about, and we've had a lot of big wins with this kind of a sponsor, but there are sponsors that may have multiple assets nearby and they can operate, say, eight small apartment complexes like a single big apartment complex. And what that allows people to do, we've talked about apartment complexes, large or small, are valued based on the net operating income. So it's the difference between the money coming in and the money going out, the rent coming in and the expenses going out. That is what your net operating income is. So yes, most people's heads go to driving rent up. And that's a big piece of increasing the net operating income. But another huge piece can be driving expenses down. And so it's very hard when you own a single small apartment to drive the, the, the expenses down below a certain point, especially for a mom and pop owner. But when you have a sponsor who owns six or seven or eight small apartment complexes within a generally small radius, they can start finding economies of scale in that maybe they bring the maintenance in-house as opposed to contracting everything out. Maybe they they bring a property manager on or create their own property management company that's now managing all of these. And on an individual asset basis, those expenses are way, way less than anyone could ever achieve if they owned that single asset by themselves. So that's kind of the defense versus the offense, right? Offense is driving rent up. Uh, defense is driving expenses down. The other thing is that the renovations are generally much, much more manageable. Even on a heavy renovation, you can you can get away with often doing one unit at a time as people move out. Um, there's only so much to manage here. And so you still can run into the same kind of thing if you if it's a 20 unit apartment complex, you don't want to be renovating 12 of the units all at the same time because they're not bringing any rent. So it, you still need an amazing operator, but these types of renovations are generally much more manageable. So that's small apartments. We're huge fans. Uh, mobile home parks. This is another thing that I absolutely love. These have been some of my uh, most lucrative investments on the personal side and with some of the, some of the deals that we've raised for. So the, Mobile home parks, you're even more likely to buy from mom and pop owners, which bring in all of the same advantages that we just covered. Uh, most mobile home parks still have rents just on the whole. If you're thinking of all the mobile home parks in the entire country, most mobile home parks still have rents that are considered low versus what they could charge based on the market. And they can be increased by a larger percentage than your typical apartment complex. Now, because of this, institutional capital is becoming more interested. And, and this is something that is very common. You'll see individual investors start chasing something because they've dug into it and they see the opportunity. And then after a while, if they have enough success, institutional capital will, ch will, will follow and chase after that and start pushing the individual investors out. The mobile home park um, asset class is seeing that to some degree, but you still have this window, like we talked about with small apartments. You have a window that is just not attractive to institutional capital. They want, you know, if they're going to go buy a mobile home, mobile home park, they want 100 units and up in general. So this 20 to 75 unit or lot mobile home park deal can be very, very attractive and lucrative for a sponsor and not so much for 
institutional capital. There's also very low turnover, especially for tenant owned homes. So within mobile home parks, you'll hear tenant owned homes versus park owned homes. Park owned homes means that the owner of the park owns the homes and you're renting those out. That's generally not some amount of that can be fine, but generally that that's not what the sponsors that we work with are going for. Even if they own them, they're going to work to put the tenant in some sort of lease to own with a somewhat substantial down payment. Now they feel like they own it. You don't have to mess with the upkeep of these mobile homes. And now you're just renting out the land to them. And that's where the beauty of mobile home parks uh, comes in. It can be some of the things to watch out for. If, if the sponsor is raising money for a park that has a number of empty lots. So they're going to, they're, they're a lot of their, uh, value add is going to be based on infilling these lots. That can be a very capital intensive and slow process. It can be a very lucrative process, especially if the sponsor knows what they're doing, but essentially they have to buy a mobile home. They have to place it on the pad and then they have to either rent it out or sell it to attend it to a tenant. So that can't, like, like I said, it can be extremely capital intensive. It can be a very slow process, often worth it, but just make sure your sponsor knows what they're doing. Um, it's also not uncommon to have a whole lot of really quick wins from a increase, the NOI increase the, the revenue coming in standpoint. A lot of these mobile home parks from mom and pop operators, uh, think about like the water. They're paying the entire water bill for all of the park because there are no meters. They call them submeters. There's one master meter for the entire park, but there's no submeters that are metering the individual amount of water that each mobile home is using. You can go install these. They're a couple hundred bucks, and now you can bill that water back to the tenant. They're simply just paying for the water that they're using. That can be huge, uh, you know, and that can be a one to two month kind of thing, just simply raising the rents to market. A lot of these mom and pop owners haven't raised the rent in a decade and they're not even collecting all of the rent. So you can start collecting all of the rent. You can evict the people who are not paying rent. They shouldn't be allowed to stay there if they're not paying rent and then just raising rents to market. And then the other thing is if, if the majority of the homes are park owned homes and they're being rented, you can start working on selling these park owned homes to the tenants through a lease to own type of a setup. So that's all that we will cover in this specific episode with uh, everything that we've talked about. We'll add a few of the less common uh, asset types in the next episode. It would mean the world to us if you would rate, review, share this podcast. That's how we want this thing to grow. We think this is valuable information that a lot of people don't have. And for more information on all of this, go to Arete Investing, A-R-E-T-E, investing.com for a whole lot more amazing information.